You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 179, Prisoner Exchanges. Over the winter of 1777-78, both sides had captured large numbers of prisoners. Some had been imprisoned for many years. Others were recent casualties of the Saratoga or Philadelphia campaigns. One big focus for the Continentals was the return of the man that many regarded as the best officer in the Continental Army, Charles Lee. Back in 1754, Lieutenant Lee served under General Braddock along with Provincial Captain George Washington, at the Battle of the Monongahela. Lee fought in America throughout the French and Indian War, rising to the rank of Major. When the war in America ended, Lee transferred to the European theater, where he fought in Portugal under General John Burgoyne. When that war ended, he did what many ambitious officers did in peacetime, He joined another army to gain more experience as a more senior officer. Although he rose to lieutenant colonel in the regular army, he took a commission as a major general in the Polish army, serving as an aide to King Stanislaus II. There, Lee gained more combat experience as a commander in the Russo-Turkish War. In 1773, the 41-year-old Charles Lee opted to retire from active military service. He moved to America. Lee spent a couple of years traveling around North America before purchasing a large estate in 1775 in what is today West Virginia, near his old war buddy Horatio Gates. Despite his recent arrival to America, Lee made clear his support for colonial rights and the patriot cause. He even published a pamphlet in 1775 in opposition to the British policies and opining that Americans could defeat the British regulars. When the war began, there was some serious consideration to making Lee the commander-in-chief. He clearly had more command experience than anyone else that was up for the job. The main concerns against him were that he had very recently been a British regular officer and indeed was still on half pay with the British Army at the time he joined the Continentals, although he did immediately resign that position in the regular army. It was also not entirely clear that he would respect Congress and the civilian rule of government. Even with whatever concerns they had, Major General Lee became the third-ranking general in the Continental Army, behind only General Washington and Artemis Ward, who had been the commander of the New England Army before the Continental Army took over. Washington encouraged the appointment of Lee and relied on the general to make up for his own deficiencies in command experience. When the British captured Lee in December 1776, 
the British leadership rejoiced. They thought that Lee was the only Continental general who had any chance of leading the Continentals to a credible defense. Many officers thought his capture presaged the collapse of the Continental Army, since the remaining amateurs would have no chance against professional and experienced British officers. Regular officers had long dismissed colonial militia as nearly useless amateurs. Few believed the rest of the Continental leadership, who had all been civilians a year earlier, could do anything without the leadership of experienced regular officers like Lee. Among the many people who believed that Lee was far superior to anyone else in the Continental Army was Lee himself. Lee had an ego that would not quit. At the time of his capture, he was corresponding with other officers about the need to replace General Washington, presumably with himself. As a British prisoner, Lee's ego did not diminish. After a brief period where the British leadership debated hanging Lee for desertion and treason, they opted to treat him as a prisoner of war, giving him access to decent lodgings and permission to dine with his former fellow British officers. They even permitted him to bring his servant and his dogs to join him in his confinement. The one permission they would not allow was parole. He was too valuable a prisoner to risk his escape and return to the Continental Army. In truth, though, Lee's record really did not live up to his reputation. He was credited with defeating General Clinton's attempt to capture Fort Sullivan in Charleston Harbor, South Carolina, in early 1776. In fact, the Americans won that battle by defying Lee's orders. Later, Lee provided a valuable service to the Continentals, by convincing Washington to get out of New York City before the British could trap him there. And while this was good advice, counseling retreat is usually not what we think of as the mark of a great general. Lee's capture put an end to his attempts to keep the Continental Army divided. Lee seemed to be waiting for the British to defeat Washington in New Jersey in late 1776, at which point Lee could take command of the Continental Army. He had refused Washington's repeated requests to join forces to fight the attacking British. It was only after his capture that the rest of Lee's army did join with Washington, giving him the manpower to attack Trenton and Princeton and retake New Jersey. As a prisoner of war, Lee openly discussed with British leadership the weaknesses in the Continental Army. He proposed strategies on how to defeat the Americans by taking the army south and then attacking northward, similar to the strategy that Howe eventually employed. This treasonous activity was only discovered decades later, long after all the parties were dead and gone. Historians speculated that Lee's immense ego compelled him to show that he could lead either army to victory. As one historian put it, few of his contemporaries would have been surprised that Lee committed treason. Most, though, would have been shocked that he had managed not to brag about it during his lifetime. As I said, though, Lee's reputation as a great commander and possible savior of the Continentals remained intact. Washington and many others were eager to secure his return. Recall that back in episode 147, I described the capture of British General Richard Prescott in Rhode Island for the primary purpose of trading him for General Lee. 
Ever since the Americans had captured Prescott, they had been trying to make that trade. Prisoner exchanges, however, between the two armies had never gone well. In the 18th century, it was common for European armies to institute standing agreements, known as cartels, for the exchange of prisoners. These cartels spelled out how prisoners would be exchanged based on rank. For example, a colonel would be exchanged for an enemy colonel. There might be other agreements for officers of different ranks, such as one major was worth two captains or four lieutenants. There were also rules such as the officers held the longest would be traded first. The details of such cartels differed between different countries and different time periods, but the general idea was that it would allow the return of prisoners on some equitable basis. In the case of the Revolutionary War, there was no cartel. The creation of a cartel would have been a recognition by the British of American sovereignty. Britain could not view America as a separate country with an army at war with Britain. Rather, it viewed events as colonies in rebellion. Those fighting were not enemy combatants. They were British subjects committing treason by levying war against the king and parliament. Many British wanted to try and hang captured rebels for treason. However, the Americans made clear that captured British officers would suffer the same fate in retaliation. So even if Britain could not openly concede American sovereignty, it had to respect the power of the enemy to capture its soldiers and treat them as they wished. If the British did not want to see their own captured officers hanged, they would have to refrain from doing so with captured Americans. The result then was a standoff. There were occasions when field officers would agree to an exchange on an ad hoc basis, but the two sides generally could not agree on a cartel. It did not help that the Continental Congress did not seem willing to abide by agreements that its officers had made. For example, remember back in 1776, General Arnold made a deal for the release of 500 American prisoners at the Battle of the Cedars on the promise of release of 500 British prisoners. The Continental Congress refused to release those British prisoners, even though the Americans had already returned. More recently, General Burgoyne's Northern Army had agreed to a convention that promised that his army would return to England on the promise that it not come back to America. Congress did not outright reject that convention, but did manage to keep the army as prisoners for years by demanding certain assurances from the king before their release. While there may have been good reasons for refusing to comply with these agreements, it also meant that the British believed that they could not trust the word of the rebels. It played into their worldview that these were not gentlemen who could conduct diplomacy. Rather, they were a criminal mob, albeit a very powerful one, that needed to be defeated totally. Whatever British sentiment was as to the honor of Congress, the reality was that there were many thousands of British and Hessian soldiers being held prisoners over the winter of 1777-78. At the same time, the British were holding thousands of American prisoners in New York and Philadelphia. Even though the British gave them very little care, even that minimal care was more of a burden than they would have preferred to have. Further, since captured British soldiers were much harder to replace than captured American soldiers, 
the British had great incentive to agree to some sort of large-scale exchange. Similarly, Congress was under pressure to do something about the thousands of American prisoners who were suffering and dying in British hands. In August of 1777, Congress authorized Washington to conduct negotiations for a prisoner exchange. At the time, Washington was more focused on the imminent British campaign to capture Philadelphia. So while he accepted the authorization, he did little about it for the next few months. In early February 1778, with the British settled into Philadelphia and the Americans at Valley Forge, General Howe sent a letter to General Washington opening up discussions for a prisoner exchange. Washington responded that he thought it best for the two armies to send negotiators for a face-to-face meeting on March 10th at Germantown to discuss such an exchange. Washington added that he hoped the two armies would adopt a larger ongoing agreement for future exchanges, in other words, a cartel. General Howe agreed to the meeting in Germantown, but did not address the idea of a cartel. He was more focused on a practical exchange of existing prisoners. Remember, Howe had already submitted his resignation to London. Although he had not heard back at this time, he expected to be gone within months. He did not want to tie his successor to an agreement that might prove disadvantageous to the British war effort. Although Congress had granted General Washington authority for an exchange, that was before the capture of Burgoyne's army. The situation had changed drastically, and Congress felt it had a stronger hand to play. On February 26th, after the two generals had agreed to the March 10th conference, Congress passed a resolution that any prisoner exchange would require that the British pay for the upkeep costs that the states had incurred for holding their prisoners, and that such payments would have to come in the form of gold or silver. Congress, which of course was always desperate for hard money, reasoned that the British had forced them to pay for the upkeep of American prisoners held by the British because the British were allowing them to starve to death. The Americans had to use an agent, Elias Boudinet, to even get small amounts of food to the prisoners held in New York to prevent starvation deaths. However good the conditions sounded to those debating the issue in York, Washington was greatly annoyed by the new conditions. He knew the British would never agree to such a thing, and that Congress was effectively scuttling the negotiations before they could even begin. To follow up on this issue, Congress dispatched a committee headed by Francis Dana to Valley Forge to meet with Washington directly on this issue. Delegates made clear that they did not want a cartel with the British. The British prisoners were more valuable than the American prisoners who could more easily be replaced. Returning large numbers of British and Hessian soldiers to their armies would only undercut the successes of removing those soldiers from the field and shrinking the overall size of the enemy in America. Washington struggled to contain his anger. Not only was Congress undercutting his authority and requiring him to go back on the terms of negotiations that he had already started with General Howe, it was also condemning thousands of American prisoners to more suffering and death. Washington expressed a sense of responsibility to these men and the need to save them, if at all possible. While he clearly disagreed with Congress, Washington also 
always acceded to Congress's will. On March 9th, the day before negotiations were to begin in Germantown, Washington wrote to General Howe to ask for a delay until March 31st. Howe's response reflected his confusion and annoyance at this sudden change, which meant continued suffering for prisoners on both sides. He had no choice, however, but to accept the delay. With the additional time, Washington began a campaign to convince Congress that an exchange and a cartel were not against American interests. On March 18th, Congress agreed not to require upfront payment before the exchange of prisoners. It passed more vague instructions that gave Washington a little more room to begin negotiations. With Congress backing down for the moment, Washington could focus on negotiations with the British. He and Howe agreed to send four negotiators each. Among the American negotiators was Elias Boutinet, who was the commissary general for the prisoners, as well as Washington's personal aide, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Hamilton. The British sent three colonels and a captain. The agreement would allow the parties to meet in Germantown and that neither side would send any soldiers there other than a 14-member guard for each negotiating team. Then, on March 30th, the day before the negotiations were scheduled to begin, Congress passed another resolution. It demanded the release of General Charles Lee and another to release Lieutenant Colonel Ethan Allen. Both of these officers had already been the topic of separate negotiations. Both parties had agreed to release Charles Lee in exchange for General Richard Prescott. By this time, the Americans had already released Prescott, who was back in British-occupied New York City. General Howe had responded that he planned to ship Lee by sea to Philadelphia, but would see what he could do about hurrying up the process. The dispute over Ethan Allen was his rank. The Americans had sent British Lieutenant Colonel Archibald Campbell. Howe responded that he would be happy to send an American Lieutenant Colonel in exchange, but that he did not consider it a fair trade for Colonel Ethan Allen. Washington had to make clear that Allen was, in fact, a lieutenant colonel, so both of these were ongoing negotiations before the Germantown meeting began. Congress's other limitation was that the negotiations would have no authority to conclude anything. Washington himself would need to sign off personally on any final agreement. Washington rushed these instructions via messenger to catch up with the negotiators who were already en route to Germantown. On March 31st, both delegations arrived late morning. Things did not get off to a good start. The Americans objected that the British team could not agree to anything legally binding. Rather, everything would be done based on the word of the commander, General Howe. Since everyone suspected General Howe would be gone shortly, any agreement would disappear along with the general. At the end of the day, the British returned to Philadelphia while the American delegation remained overnight in Germantown. The next day, the British delegation returned. They informed the Americans that General Howe had not intended them to remain behind enemy lines overnight and that they could not just live there. With that, and with the two sides unable to reach even a legal basis to begin negotiations, the Americans packed up and returned to Valley Forge. After another exchange of letters between the generals, the parties agreed to resume negotiations at Newton, 
which was about 20 miles northeast of Germantown and further away from British lines. Both delegations arrived on the evening of April 6th. The British had failed to bring provisions with them, so the Americans invited them to share their dinner. The officers enjoyed a pleasant evening and left negotiations for the following day. The friendly dinner, however, and the new location did nothing to break the impasse in negotiations. The Americans insisted that they wanted a permanent cartel. The British countered that they had no authority to do anything other than a partial exchange of existing prisoners. After two days of pointless debate, several of the British officers returned to Philadelphia to see if there was any chance of getting any more authority to establish a cartel. On April 9th, the same day they returned to Philadelphia, General Howe received word from London that it had accepted his resignation. With that, Howe's position hardened, since he did not want to leave his successor with an agreement that the successor might not want. The British negotiators returned to Newton with the bad news. After several more days of attempting to get the Americans to accept a partial exchange, the American delegation withdrew. Both parties returned home without an agreement. The failed negotiations, however, did not prevent the return of Charles Lee. After receiving Washington's letter, General Howe rushed Lee to Philadelphia, where he arrived on March 25th. On April 5th, while the prisoner exchange negotiations were ongoing, he received parole and was permitted to travel to York, where he could address the Continental Congress. A couple weeks later, on April 22nd, the two sides reached a final agreement to complete the exchange. General Lee rode into Valley Forge, met by General Washington and an honor guard made up of all the top Continental leadership. Washington offered Lee command of the right wing of the army. Lee, however, quickly spoiled the enthusiasm for his return. On his first night back, Washington offered him a bed in the same house where he and Martha were living, with his bedroom right next to Martha's. Overnight, Lee smuggled in his mistress into the house and spent the night enjoying his newfound freedom with a little more excess than the Washingtons found acceptable. When he showed up the next morning for breakfast, rather disheveled, they made clear that he would need to find new accommodations. And that was just fine with Lee. Rather than assume command immediately, he asked for an opportunity to return to York to address Congress again. There, he met with President Henry Lawrence. He raised his criticisms of Washington being an unfit commander and suggested that the Continental Army was in no shape to take on the British. He suggested that the Continentals retreat out west of Pittsburgh to give up on contention for the eastern seaboard. Apparently, Lawrence thought his suggestions sounded just as insane as they do to the modern ear. He opted not to pass along Lee's comments and suggestions to the rest of Congress. At this time, Congress had just put to bed the Conway cabal and was not ready for another general to try to usurp Washington's command. Further, Lee's complete lack of faith in the Continental Army showed just how out of touch he was with the rest of the American leadership. With that, Lee returned home to Virginia. He would rest and recuperate for a few weeks at home on his plantation before rejoining the army at Valley Forge and resuming his command. A few weeks later, in May, Ethan Allen finally received his exchange. 
Allen had been one of the longest-held American officers following his capture in September 1775. The British had sent Allen to London, where he languished in the Tower of London for some time, awaiting execution for treason. After being returned to New York as a prisoner of war, Allen remained a prisoner until May 1778. Upon his exchange, Congress offered him a command as a full colonel. Allen, however, returned to his home in Vermont. There, he took a position as a major general in the Vermont militia. Since the war never again returned to Vermont, Allen sat out the rest of the war. Instead, he devoted his time to advocacy for Vermont independence. Next week, we're going to take a look across the Atlantic where a young naval captain named John Paul Jones attacks the British mainland. This episode is supported by Factor. Let's face it, preparing good and healthy meals is a lot of work. As a result, I often end up eating just junk food. Factor offers a better solution. You can get pre-prepared, chef-crafted, and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. You'll have over 35 different options a week to choose from, including keto, calorie smart, vegan, plus veggie, and more. It's going to be less expensive than takeout, and since it's pre-delivered, it's already home waiting for you when you get there. The meals are 100% ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed, and you can schedule the number of meals each week that works for you. Best of all, it tastes good and is good for you. As a special deal for our listeners of the American Revolution podcast, you can go to factormeals.com ARP50 and use the code ARP50 to get 50% off. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first order. Hey! Thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. My thanks, as always, to Patreon supporters at the Alexander Hamilton Club level, Trey Nance and George Davis. I'm also pleased to welcome a new Robert Morris Circle supporter on Patreon this week, Kurt Avard. Now, you may recognize Kurt's name as the author of the book, First Do No Harm, which was the subject of a special episode on this podcast a few months ago. My interview with Kurt took place just before the book's release. The book is now on sale everywhere, and it's a great story set during a plague in 17th century Vienna. Again, the name is First Do No Harm if you want to check it out. Kurt has generously opted to support this podcast at the Robert Morris Circle level on Patreon. And like all my Patreon supporters, his commitment to this podcast helps cover my cost and keeps it free for everyone else who cannot afford to support it financially. So this week's episode may not have been terribly exciting, since it basically involved a bunch of meetings about prisoner exchanges that ended up going nowhere. I think, though, that it really is important to remember that prisoners of war in the American Revolution really faced a miserable experience and a high probability of death, even compared to POWs in later wars. It must have been very difficult for the military leaders to allow these heroes to suffer the agony in British prisons and prison ships, knowing that more of them were dying there than on the battlefield. Leaders had to weigh that suffering against the idea of releasing British and Hessian prisoners 
back to their ranks and perhaps extending the length of the war for years by allowing the enemy to refill their ranks with the former prisoners. So, if anything, this episode is meant as a reminder that even if it's not the exciting story of battles, we still have to remember the thousands of men suffering and dying every day from neglect and abuse in the British prisons and prison ships. Despite the inability of the two sides to agree to a cartel, some prisoners did manage to regain their freedom, particularly officers who seemed to be a priority for any exchanges that did happen. The return of General Charles Lee was, of course, a big event for the Americans. However, as we will see in future episodes, Lee did not exactly live up to the hopes and dreams of the American leadership. In an earlier episode, I already recommended the book Forgotten Patriots by Edwin Burroughs, which takes a close look at the condition of American prisoners, primarily those held in New York City. My book recommendation this week covers the other side of the story. It is called Captives of Liberty, Prisoners of War and the Politics of Vengeance in the American Revolution by T. Cole Jones. This book is primarily focused on British and Hessian prisoners that were being held by the Americans, and how the American leadership came to terms with holding prisoners and how they treated them. The book was just published last year, and the author, Dr. Jones, is a professor of history at Purdue University. It's an interesting book on a topic that is not widely covered in most other books about the American Revolution at least not with this level of detail. So if you want to read more about prisoners of war during the American Revolution, Captives of Liberty is a book that you might want to check out. And remember, if you order through the link on my blog, either going through Amazon or to Bookshop, I do get a commission on any book purchases that you make. My online recommendation this week is another ebook from archive.org. And perhaps ebook is being a bit generous, since it's really only a 12-page pamphlet. It's called Exchange of Major General Charles Lee from a Manuscript of Elias Boudinet. The pamphlet describes in detail the negotiations and series of events that led to the exchange of General Charles Lee for British General Richard Prescott. It's an interesting first-hand account of how prisoner negotiations between the two sides happened. As always, you can do a search for the Exchange of Major General Charles Lee on archive.org, or just use the direct links that I've included to the document on both my website and blog. Go to blog.amrevpodcast.com for more details. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for my mailing list, and if you do so before the end of the year, you'll be entered in a raffle to win one of two prizes. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call Redacted History. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies.
Stream the Redacted History podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.